over souls, bearing in depths of my steps, left the funny skulls, my timber limbs heavy too loud. Good morning, this is Ellie Newman on its relationship, and my guest today is artist Phil Hansen. Phil received his formal training at Northwest College of Art in, is it called Palsblo, Phil? Uh, yeah, my formal training was a quarter and a half, and then I dropped out. So. Okay, but that quarter and a half, was that Poulsbo, Washington? Was it? Pol- Pols- yeah, Pols- Washington. Is that a nice place to be? Oh, it's beautiful. So Phil spent a little bit of time in Washington in art school, and uh, he also has a very cool, inspiring, and thought-provoking TED Talk that you're going to want to check out after you listen to this interview. Phil was here in Ketchum last month to participate in the inaugural and hence extremely successful Tugboat Summit, and he was generous enough to share his perspectives and art with the students of community school. I just have to mention that my daughter is in community school. She's in sixth grade, and her best friend, when I told them that I was having you on the show, said, oh, my God, I have the biggest crush on him. (laughs) (laughs) So it was at least very successful in in that manner. And the kids, I know, I got response from all the teachers and any parents that saw it and, and the kids, and they just absolutely loved it. They were just incredibly inspired, and, you know, every time I bring it up to someone, even weeks afterwards that you can just see like them light up and the go on their face and the excitement start to percolate and they just were really really thought it was a great presentation that's wonderful so can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was at the summit how you were participating and what you did there um i actually was able to hang out for most of the summit i did give a talk there and it was very similar to the ted talk that you mentioned earlier and i also got the whole group participating in creating a piece of art uh using their fingerprints and so it was kind of a, a two stage thing i gave a talk and then i had everybody creating a tiny piece of art uh their own and then all of those little pieces came together to create the piece so as they were making it they had no idea what they were making and it turned out to be a picture of Hemingway, which is sort of the uh, iconic um, figure here, which I don't really understand because he didn't really live here that long. This is where he he ended his life, but for some reason, this is is a spot that people connect connect with Hemingway. So the participants were collaborating on it and making a little piece. Was the original piece computer generated? No, that was a a labor intensive part on my end. And, And how did you create that? So basically it was a giant grid and I just broke apart the image into a way that uh, I, I believe that people could create their little piece of it. So when, when people created the, their piece of the picture, what they were doing is they were actually doing their fingerprint mm-hmm. and uh, they would press their finger on the ink pad. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is that once you press your finger on the ink pad, your, ink gets, your, your finger gets soaked with ink really well. And then if you press on a piece of paper uh, consecutively, maybe 10 times in a row, it's very consistent that that number one is the same darkness and number 10 is, you know, is the 10th, is the 10th lightest. Mm-hmm. And so as your finger goes along, it gets lighter and lighter. And so I just calculated that out uh, uh, and then decided that the first press from the ink pad, the third press from the ink pad and the fifth had a nice color transition. Built out these little pieces that People's way. initial presses are pretty consistent in their, the level of darkness and tone. Close enough. I certainly was a little concerned because some of us have drier hands than others. And so I knew that there would be some variation, but uh, uh, doing that first, third, and fifth press actually kind of evened it all out. And does a drier hand soak up more ink or less ink? Like would their uh, press be darker? Less. Less. And so are you really good at math? 
<laughs> no, no, it's just I, I, I like to break things into a process. I like to fragment things. I like to find different ways that processes can work and trying to make a larger picture from smaller bits, and that's how a lot of my work comes together. So did you just get an ink pad and start practicing and, and develop the numbers of the tone that coincided with the levels of darkness that you wanted to achieve on the picture? Uh, ultimately, yes. I mean, but arriving to that idea, that idea was a complete accident. I was doing something else with an ink pad, and I kept being annoyed. Huh. The second press, the was third lighter. press, it just lighter and lighter. And then once, and then went, but at that, you know, at some moment in there in that project, it clicked. I was like, wait a second. You know, we could create a 15 level variable image, and you know, basically anybody can make a photographic image at home with absolutely no training, just using their fingerprint in this system. <laughs> Did you do color by numbers when you were little? <laughs> no, actually, uh, uh, I remember seeing them, but no, it it, it it was much cheaper to just give me. And how did you create the the original uh, piece of artwork, the original Hemingway picture? Uh, well, so that was based on a photograph. I just took that photograph, I enlarged it, and then um, I had a grid, and then I just started I started working from the grid and you know and just deciding where it need, where I needed my uh, four shades, my dark, uh, medium, a light, and then my white, and then just deciding where all those needed to go and all these little everybody's little fingerprint, how it was all going to add up. Mm -hmm. Which, I don't know if you watch Cake Boss, but my daughter is into a lot of the cooking shows. They do a lot of work with the grid, mm. which I think that came from the development of technology. Actually, so the grid and kind of art history Or were with... they doing it in ancient Mesopotamia? I just don't know. <laughs> well, there was, this, there was a fascinating uh, BBC documentary. Um, I don't remember who hosted it. Not right off, but ultimately what they looked at is around, the, I think, the 1400s, 1500s, all of a sudden there started being amazingly photographic paintings. Uh -huh. And it was literally just a switch where it, it, you, it, were very, it was very stylized and impressionistic and stuff, and then boom, there's a switch to realistic. And they kept digging in and trying to find out why, and it turns out, and this is debatable depending on who you want to talk to, that m many of the old masters actually used lenses to uh, 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 to take what was in front of them in very bright light and to then trace it on their canvas as they would use the lens to project the image onto the canvas. And so there's actually a, there's much more of a history of uh, using technology in art than I think a lot of people know or want to, basically that people want to admit, I think. Yeah, and they'd often start with, a, they'd often start with a sketch and then, you know, they're Maybe not the gridding and the way that we think about it, but there was definitely an enlarging process. Right, putting and the frescoes on the ceilings. The, you were doing the same thing. Okay, you do this part, you do that part, <laughs> and then we'll have this amazing masterpiece. Yeah, well, now, I think nowadays we have this idea that artists, or not everybody, but many people have this idea that it needs to be pure and untouched by these other mechanical elements, but the reality was is that artists used to be craftsmen and they used all of these things. And other people and then as well, it's been right? I mean, we just went and saw the um, the glass exhibit in Seattle. He has... Chihuly? Yes. And he has, you know, the incredible pieces. And when you watch the videos of them being made, you know, he's the director 
And, you know, the, the conductor of, a, of an amazing production, he's not actually in there doing it. You know, he created the design and then the videos show all the different people participating and doing the different elements of creating the, the art, which is incredible. In it. Yeah, it really makes you beg the question of what is it to be an artist and how involved does somebody have to be? And, like, if I, if I look over your shoulder and direct you at creating a piece, are you creating your own or are you creating my vision of a piece of art? So you were chosen to be the official artist for the 2009 Grammy Awards, and I want to talk a little bit about your breakthrough piece, I think, that maybe had partially led to that, um, or, or your initial recognition, and it was a time-lapse video of a two-day project called Influences, consisted of 30 paintings on your torso, each representing an influence in your life, and then you peeled it off and cut a silhouette out of it of your profile. Mm -hmm. So is that, in your mind, is that performance art? Or That's actually more. kind of a, a another interesting element that, you know, it's only fairly recently that we've been able to record video as much as we want and be able to compress it down uh, uh, as, you know, w within your home situation. Without having <laughs> yeah, a big some, studio. some of us can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've, I've actually never seen myself as a performance artist. Mm -hmm. I see that the, the videos are meta art that they become their own thing and that they, they stand alone versus the end artwork is its own thing too. But the video is such a different experience. So it's a continuum of, of creating and creation. Like it's just elongating the, the what maybe people typically had thought about art where you have the idea and you produce something, right? So you're on this continuum that is continual creation and development and process. Yeah, and bringing people into that process, because I think that's a really unique thing that we're able to do now, um, uh, where it used to be, or I mean, and many artists still do, you know, keep that process very private. And I think for people to engage with art, and one of my goals has always been to get people interested in art and finding different ways to bring them into art and see it, see it in a different way. We realize, but in a different way now with technology. Yeah, I feel, yeah we, we can definitely uh, uh, reach out and touch more people more easily. And in, in terms of actually involving the audience, I've done this many times now where I ask people for a story and then they, they share this story from their life and then I write it and the actual writing uh, on the canvas creates the image. If I squish the letters together or stretch them apart, I can make different shades. Which you spent six days doing, right? And eating takeout food. Do you have good takeout food in Minneapolis? No, no. Uh, it's all right. You'd be suffering here six days on takeout. <laughs> and so you are actually integrating the viewers, at mm -hmm. some of them at some point, and then later on to create the art. And is that yeah. fun? It's fun, but it's, it's, it's mentally exhausting because you're talking to people all day long. Because uh, I've done this, well, the, the last time I did this, I just did a huge piece back in June. And it took an entire month to create the piece. And I put my phone number out. And so I had people calling me and sharing their stories. A lot of these were heavy stories. You know, you'd have one moment where, you know, somebody would be sharing this really uplifting story. And then five minutes later, you get a call from somebody that's just, just heart-wrenching. And so it's absolutely exhausting. But... The amount of connection that comes out of it and the energy that then goes into the art is just is wonderful. What was the technical element of cutting the profile? In the in the chest painting piece? Yeah. Um, not much of a technical element. I, it was just a, a regular old um, uh, X-Acto knife, a hobby knife, and just cut it at an angle and sliced it out. So I want to talk a little bit about embracing the shake. Is so In mm -hmm. an art school, you developed a shake. 
And you said it was the destruction of your lifelong dream of becoming an artist. And you had a single-minded pursuit of pointillism. And a vicious cycle ensued where you were holding the pen tighter and tighter to control that and, and hence work, worsening the shake. And you decided to leave art school. That sums it up exactly. So, yeah, I mean, the, the shake ultimately did start back in high school. And it was, it was just, you know, your hand shakes a little bit. And that's uh -huh. no big deal. Once in a while, you're a little tired or you're over-caffeinated. And, you know, and you just kind of, whatever you're doing, you just kind of, you clench down, you keep working through it. But then... That ended up happening too many times, and then my hand actually fully developed a natural shake on its own. And then that, as you said, became this vicious cycle. And it ultimately then led to full-on nerve damage in my arm. And I, uh, uh, the, then, it, I, then I was clenching so hard that it wasn't just the nerves, but I was affecting the joints, and I had trouble holding things. I had to write with my left hand. I had to drive with my left hand. I couldn't really grip or use my right hand for anything. And then, uh, yeah, so I quit art school, and then it was a short time after that that I just quit art completely. And were you, like, at that time, were you fighting yourself? I mean, did you feel like it was sort of your internal desires against your your physical, you know, your hand and your arm? Like, Absolutely. was there an internal battle going on? Absolutely. You know, I had this dream, and my dream was to pursue art in a specific way that this that I had envisioned, and that was not... Was it was not going it wasn't the way working. I planned. And yeah. where did the dream start of becoming an artist? Like, do you remember wanting to be um, anything else? <laughs> That's a good question. I would say that that goes back far enough. I mean, I'm sure that you know I had interests, and in, I mean, I always loved science, and you know, I, I think I was one of those kids who was in school and it was just, oh, what am I going to do? Well, I could, you know, I, I I wasn't really thinking of the end goal of the job. I was thinking of what school could teach me. And, but did you, know, you always like art? Or your, is art in your family or are your parents artists or any siblings or any family friends? Or how were you my, introduced to art? My parents are not. Um, I mean, my, uh, my mom was very uh, uh, helpful in getting me to just make stuff when I was younger. And yeah. my grandma was a painter and my uncle is. But I, you know, I never was really around them much because I grew up in a different state. Um, but I, it was just very natural progression. I mean, I didn't even take art classes until a sophomore in high school. And so I kind of, you know, drew on the side. I was just the kid who would be drawing fairly often. Yeah. And um, so would you say we talk a lot about, on the show, we talk a lot about people's, their element. You know, finding that thing where your passions and your skills meet and you're in your element and sort of time goes by without noticing and you're sort of the most effective and connected and focused and maybe even in a, a meditative state often. Did you realize early on that, that art was that for you, that that was where you were in your element? Um, no, no, I would say not actually. Uh, I think early on it was, it was just a thing that I was into and I could do and I was, I was decent at it and so I continued to pursue it. And it wasn't until I actually went back to art years after quitting that then it became this bigger force in my life. And where do you think the single-mindedness element came to? Is that just a part of your personality that, that you know, you were focused on that type of art and doing it in that way and you kept going at it as much as you could? Is that, you think, a personality trait? It, it definitely was that. I was a total perfectionist, and pointillism lends itself to, 
you can be extremely perfect with it. And, and I really liked that factor. And so I pushed that and pushed and pushed and tried to make, you know, as photographic images as possible. And when you left school, what did you do? I, well, I mean, I left art school and then I went off to, um, uh, I actually pursued being a dentist at first, which in hindsight is funny because with a tremor, that would be a bad, <laughs> a very bad career choice. Um, and then I, I went and so to what, the what, university. Why, why dentistry? What, what were you thinking? The little I tools? No I mean, the precision element is there, right? You're working yeah. in a small area and it's super focused and you need to be, you know, perfect at detail. Was that the part that was I, I, enticing? I, I think a lot of it was really that, you know, I was giving up my dream and I just, I, I had to throw my mental, I had to throw myself at something. If I just floated aimlessly, then that depression would be even worse. And so I remember, you know, it was probably one of those things of just looking through the, uh, uh, the college book of all the classes and seeing dentistry and say, hey, I, I can do that. I can yeah. do that. Okay, I'll go do that. And then st taking the prereqs for it. And, and, that and that you could be good at it? Was that one of the elements that was appealing? Like, oh, that's something I'd be good at? Or just that you I, could do it? Yeah, I, I, I think it was probably just the latter that, you know, it was, it was something that I could aim at and I could do and I could pursue that and forget about art. And be completely focused on something else. Yeah, yeah. But you came back. Uh, you went to a neurologist, and, and before we talk about what he said, what led you to go and see him? Had you seen neurologists before? No, actually, it was one of those things that, you know, it's like with, with when, when, whenever you see somebody with nerve damage, you always hear nerves don't repair themselves. And I remember being so frustrated with art, nerves don't repair themselves. So when I quit, I just, I mean, there was no going to a doctor. It was just, I'm done. Just walked away from it completely. And I spent three years away from it, and then a friend uh, saw some of my old work and recommended, hey, why don't you start drawing again? And at that point, I, was, I, I, had, I had distanced myself from that, that, that anger and that frustration of art. And so I was like, well, you know, I still have the shake, so I wonder, you know, what, 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 I wonder if there actually is a problem or it's still here three years later, so what's going what's gonna to happen with it ten years from now? And so then I decided to see the neurologist. And the neurologist said, embrace the shake. Was, was that a sincere remark or was it glib? And, and how did you react? Um, I remember being kind of frustrated. You know, he, he did some basic tests and it was pretty simple diagnosis that, you know, that's permanent, dam permanent nerve damage. Mm -hmm. And the, basically my hand and my brain quite don't, they, they, they don't communicate to tell my hand what steady is. And so my hand just has a perfect little shake. And so when I'm drawing a line, you know, that line has a perfect little wave to it because my hand's just kind of bouncing back and forth. And he and the uh, uh, the neurologist, you know, he had me draw a straight line. He had me draw a spiral. And frankly, my, my spiral, although this little squiggly line was a better spiral than his. Mm -hmm. And he sort of is like, well, why don't you just embrace the shake? You know, it's, I mean, and, and I think there was part of it like, you know, he clearly sees people in worse condition. He's a neurologist. He sees the, the extreme of it. And so, you know, some guy with a little shake in his hand, he's like, eh, it's not that big a deal. Just embrace it. Go with it. Yeah, and I remember like, oh, that's that's great for you to say. But it's really not that easy, and but as things are, you know, somebody says something that kind of sticks in your brain and worms its way in, and bit by bit, I started mulling that idea over, and I'm like, well, what if I, you know, what if I did? What if I did just embrace it? So, do you remember sort of when that aha moment was when you're like, well, was it more like 
crawling into it? Like, well, maybe I could try it or was it, I can do that. It was definitely the crawling. It was, mm-hmm. it was, uh, uh, you know, I got a big uh, piece of poster board and I laid out an image and I was like, well, you know, because if, if my, if my line squiggles, then that means my, my line needs, I need to be working on a larger scale to be able to still make a, the, the kind of imagery that I want. And so with this big piece of poster board, then I let my hands even go more, more naturally shake. And rather than trying to hold back, I just kind of let loose with it. And it was in that process that I discovered I could act, I could still make art. Oh, and it was just in that process. So then that was the aha moment. Like, oh, I'm not stuck. I'm not severely limited. I just have to change my approach. And was it scary to try it? Was it scary to get out that piece of paper? And, you know, did you sort of feel like, okay, I'm at a crossroads here. I'm getting out the piece of paper. And if it works, I can go down the path I've always wanted to go down. And if it doesn't, Kind of screwed, and uh, dentistry's still calling. <laughs> Were you nervous? Uh, I think at that point, I lost a lot of the connection with art. And so I was very much just approaching it freely. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this thing. If it works, well, if it, if it works, well, then that opens up a whole different thing. But if it doesn't work, oh, well. That you know, was okay. I mean, I haven't been doing art. Like, it yeah, didn't have so. to work. Yeah. I mean, you, the failure would have been, it would have just left me on the path I was going where down. Where you so. were on. Yeah. So it wasn't. It didn't feel like such a big risk that sort of allowed yeah. you to to try it. Yeah. Well, super- and even the, and even after I started, even after I started making art again, I still continued down the same path because I didn't know what that meant. I just loved making art, and so I continued to do that. So then I had two parts in my life. So you found a different approach to make the art you wanted to make. What? art did you want to make? Was that always consistent as well, and was that always in focus and, and something you were really clear about? I think that that really revealed itself in the in, in the new processes before because I mean I was I was younger before and I was always you know kind of imitating what I saw and didn't really have my own voice but I was always drawn to faces I was always drawn to people and um, uh, and a little bit of that may stem from slight uh, face blindness where. When when I see somebody, I if I see them again ten minutes later, I'm it, it might be the same person, but I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure. So I have a little bit of that, and so I think that may have been some of my drawn. And my, you're incredibly talented. Your drawings and your basic work and your art has now become the something further from that in the way you're producing it or the elements you're using to produce it. But just your basic beginning pieces of your drawings, they're incredibly good. Well thank you. Is that something you sort of realized all along? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I was a perfectionist for a long time, so I always tried really hard to be to be better and always trying to up myself. And I'm always doing that now. And, and however I approach things is I always want the next one to be better. You were primarily interested in fragmentalism. Fragmentation? Uh, frag- yeah, uh, fragmentation. I know. I looked it yeah. up. I'm like, is there a word? Fragmentalism? <laughs> It said uh, yeah, there was, sure but there I wasn't is. sure. The computer didn't recognize it, but when I Googled it, it was there. Talked about fragmentation. So where did that come from? I think a lot of that stemmed from doing the pointillism. You know, that these little dots could make a picture. And then when I started doing the scribbling to make pictures, well, scribbling can make a picture. And then bit by bit, then I started to break things apart and work in them in smaller pieces rather than one large piece in in its entirety. 
And uh, it was in that breaking apart process that I kind of rekindled that love of pointillism, but in a different way. And do you know, sort of, had you seen that earlier on with other artists? Was Did you have a mentor in art school? Was was it just that, when you saw that, that was what appealed to you? I'm, I, I definitely saw uh, work that was broken apart, fragmented before. Um, and so, I mean, there was definitely an influence there, but I can't, I can't, I wouldn't be able to put my finger on anything direct. It was more of just that constant exploring and just kind of pursuing what interested me and finding ways. And, and, and the other element too is that when I fragment or I break apart an image in my art, the way that I approach either the method of creation or the, uh, or the material itself almost always connects to the person I'm making a picture of. And so there's always a relationship between the method of creation or the material to the portrait. And so I think that's where a lot of the fragmentation comes in too, because I'm, I'm just personally very interested in identity and how we identify ourselves and how society identifies us as well. And so how are you developing that with your subject? Are you doing it with people that you already know? Are you getting interested in someone? Are you talking to them before you proceed? Like when you did the Starbucks cup and you had the image of the boy on the cups, where did he fit in your life? That, uh, that piece was actually, that boy was um, through, uh, I sponsored him through World Vision. Back in college, in some class, we were encouraged to look into uh, sponsoring a child. And so I did that. And apparently he's, he's moved on and he's doing well enough now, so I don't sponsor him. Or I'm unable to sponsor him anymore through the system. But um, he was my sponsor at the time, and I, in, in that class, one of the things they always kind of, and is kind of one of the big phrases that they like to throw out there around sponsoring a child is just how little it costs. And, you know, it's the less, than the less than the price of a cup of coffee. And so I went into Starbucks, and I asked for a bunch of cups. <laughs> and they just gave me the cups, and then I just, using a, a regular old graphite pencil, just created the image of him on the cup. Yeah, yeah, you just did it like it was so easy. <laughs> it was so easy to do. And and so when you don't want to go a little bit more, explore a little more, more about the relationships with your subjects, then choosing to put that picture on the cup, is it the connection between costing so little to do something and, and, and help someone in such a huge way and the cup's costing so little? Is it your relationship with him where he fits into your internal like sensory experience what, what is that connection that you are producing in in the art or a reflection of in the art you know like many artists i would kind of answer slightly vaguely and that's it it changes through time and how i would how i initially uh, uh came to that idea is probably a little differently than how i view it now so i think all of those things interplay and kind of make a a long-term connection with it, with the piece overall, but I wouldn't really be able to put my finger on the exact idea at this moment. So is the creation part, you're, you're creating the art and that's being an artist, and you're also producing the image. Are they both in your mind? You know, the actual process of the creating and that experience and then the, the production as, of, of what's produced as well? Um, I'm always very much aware of both, and there's some uh, projects that I don't record the process uh, at all. 
And there's others that I spend much more time recording the process where, let's say, creating actual art would only take me three hours, but I spend a week and a half because I'm doing a lot more on the video side. But I'm always very aware of the, of the creation process and how can, I, how can I bring people into that and how can I engage them in that element. And they're both the art. Uh, many times, but fr frankly, not all the time. You know, sometimes yeah. it becomes just. It, it, sometimes it just becomes documentation, and I'm just I'm just recording the process for people to be able to see what went into it. But then other times, the video really does develop a life of its own, where there's elements at play that can really work to give the voice a completely different voice than uh, the end product. Okay, well, this is Ellie Newman on Its Relationship, and I'm talking to Phil Hansen, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back. This is Ellie Newman on Its Relationship, and I'm here with Phil Hansen, and we're talking about embracing the shake and his perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about embracing limitation and how that could drive creativity. What did you think drove creativity before? Uh, freedom. <laughs> I always thought that, you know, having more resources, having more time, having more, 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 more was the answer. Then I could pursue anything I wanted to and it would be just, yeah, having that, having no limit was the greatest idea in the world. And was that a destination to reach when you were in that mind? You'd have all that creativity and, and through the freedom you achieved? So I'm just wondering if when you were thinking that way about creativity, if you were thinking you didn't have freedom at that point, so like that was something outside of yourself or in the future that you had to get to, and then once you got there and you had that freedom, then you could be truly creative. Yeah, uh, yes, but at the same time, I don't think I was thinking about creativity in that sense. Um, I was thinking about the art that I wanted to make, and you know, I mean, obviously, the creativity was rooted in that, though. But it was a more practical and kind of focused. Yeah. You, you you had a plan. Yeah, I mean, and there were there were, uh, and this was when I was in school full time and working full time, and I had very little time and very little money. And uh, looking back now, it's funny because then I would spend months working on one piece, just slowly in the evening, a little bit at a time, and I would have maybe fifteen dollars to do the entire thing. And so I had to find a way to stretch $15 into creating a huge piece of art. And so I got very creative. In hindsight, I was very creative in how I went about doing that. Was there, was there less pressure on you in producing the art at that point than when it was your, your job as well as your passion? Yes and no. Um, in the sense that you know, I, didn't, I wasn't relying on it for anything. But in many ways, there was a lot more pressure because I couldn't create as much. I was very, very limited by the amount of time I was, as I was saying. And so I had to be very wise. I had to be very, you know, very much, this is exactly what I want to make because I'm going to spend the next six months doing it and nothing else. Was that fun? It, it, it helped pass the time through school. <laughs> I don't know if creating that way is fun. You know, it's, it's certainly, I mean, did but, it seem, but there's did the it passion. Feel, so. Did it feel like work? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Like, I mean, just the yeah, working on something for six months, I, in many ways, I, I, I've never found something in, in life that long that, that, is, that isn't work. It's, it's yeah. definitely work at, at many points in that process. Okay, so you got back in the box. 
and you actually began sort of looking for limitations and imposing limitations upon yourself. Does the type of limitation matter? Were you exploring? Were you looking at different limitations? Yeah, I was definitely exploring, you know, because once, you know, then if uh, uh, in playing with budget, you know, very quickly I realized, oh, budget can very much affect you know, what you're able to create. But then, at the same time, you don't want to limit your budget every single time if you don't need to. So then it was a time constraint. And then, you know, it's working with different elements and, you know, kind of, could I create art with this? Or, you know, that kind of a thing. And you, you said to be limited, to become limitless. Why do the limits help you to be more creative? And do we have, is that just one way to become creative or do you think kind of the best way? <laughs> there's there's a few questions there for sure. But uh, uh, limitations, I mean, we're, we're, we have them all the time in life. And I think we just kind of blow past them or they they push us down a certain path. And so I think limitations are maybe the most natural way to find our creativity. But it's also maybe one of the hardest because we have to really change our perception of limitations. And rather than seeing the thing that's blocking us and take, you know, bringing in all of our past experience and saying, you know, this is stopping me from X. It's, it's more of looking at this thing and saying, oh, okay, this is, this, is, this is the path I have to go down, and this is in my way, and what am I going to do about it? Rather than letting something stop us, we work with it. And I think there's many, many things in life where we can get stuck in a deep, dark hole from something that's limiting us, where many times it's our perception of it. It's our own beliefs that are creating that, that are causing that limitation to have power in our lives. And maybe our reaction to it as well, right? Because I was just thinking, we were saying that when you were fighting the shake. Sorry, there's a phone uh, <laughs> When you were fighting the shake, right? Like you mm -hmm. were fighting against it and trying to control it. It was there. But mm -hmm. instead of like accepting it and saying, it's here, I'm going to work with it, you were, you said, had an internal battle trying to control it and fight against it, which was probably consuming a lot of your energy and focus away from the art, but also making it worse, right? The shake mm -hmm. got worse. Absolutely. And, and the other major piece of that is that I believed I had an external limitation of mm -hmm. my hand shaking. Sorry? When you say external, do you mean something that was imposed upon you? Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had this thing and I had to fight this thing. But in hindsight, it was my perception of the handshaking. You know, it was, I mean, if, if I just took a different perception that, okay, my hand shakes, well, what can I do with a shaky hand? What art can I create with a shaky hand? Or does an artist have to have steady hands? You know, I never looked at it that way. And so now... <laughs> a dentist might. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that would take a pretty special dentist to be able to shake your hand. And, yeah. I don't know, and, but they maybe could figure something out. <laughs> yeah, there's a specialty there for sure. And, uh, uh, but so coming at it with that perspective of changing the mindset about what a limitation means and how to approach this problem... I mean, you know, now I still have the same shaky hand, but yeah. my perception of it is completely different. Is it annoying when I drink coffee or if I'm trying to light a candle or something like that? Yes, because it's harder to light a candle because my hand's waving back and forth. But ultimately, it didn't. I mean, it's it's it doesn't affect the art that much. I just have to find a different way to approach it. And so, and and within sharing the story, sharing my story, and getting out there. I have a lot of people who come to me and they're saying, hey, my hand's shaking too. You know, what am I supposed to do about it? And it's fascinating because they're very much in that place where I was, where 
they have this thing that's being thrust into their lives and is changing the life that they had set out for themselves. And whereas now, for me, you know, it's, it's, so it, it just makes me very much see that the belief structure, the expectations have so much, they're, they're really the glue that holds this limitation in place. So that's a pretty incredible personal transformation and sort of metaphysical appreciation of how the world and the universe all works. Did that just descend upon you? Were you working at it? Was it just a moment? Were you meditating, going to yoga? Like what? <laughs> what do you think led you to be able to go from that struggle to acceptance and then embracing and realizing that then this was actually a powerful freedom rather than, than a limitation by accepting it? By changing your beliefs and your mindset, you cha changed your reality. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess in hindsight. <laughs> it's one of those things that honestly... It was I, I easy. It was easy. Just like painting the face on the coffee cups. What's wrong with you people? No, I mean, but I'm running into limitations all the time that I'm yeah. extremely frustrated with myself with. And But it's funny because now I, I, I feel stronger and stronger that the limitations I'm running into is that I am the limitation. Mm -hmm. It's not something else. You know, I ultimately can change it. I just have to find the right approach. And so, in, I guess in some ways that's actually even more daunting because it's pretty, it's, it's very safe. It's very easy to say that this limitation is there and it's, it's going to be there and there's nothing I can do about it because then you can just let it go. You can just let that thing be. But if, if, if you put on yourself that you can change it or you could change yourself to work with it in some way, that's, I guess that, yeah, that puts a lot of pressure on oneself too. Well, and too, by just saying, oh, this is, this, there's nothing, this is how it is and there's nothing I can do about it. So I have to either quit and just stay where I am and I can't move forward. You know, I think it's uh, in a lot in our society we have that people don't want to take responsibility for what's going on because then you have to be responsible for what's going on. But the only way to change what's going on is to say, oh, I can take responsibility for what's going on. I'm actually a pretty powerful person and I can change things or do something else or work with it or work around it. So it, it really is, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean lightly, like it's an incredible transformation that you went through and to be able to hold on to it and continue it with your life in other areas where, where things get stuck. And I'm serious. Or was that always in you? Are you just that person? I'm, I mean, I'm always trying to look on the bright side. I mean, I'm, I'm that kind of a person and I'm always trying to, you know, find a way to make things work. Um, and one, I think once I became aware that life is what you make it, and this is, this is it, you know, there's not a, there's not a second chance at it. And I think, you know, I'd always heard that kind of stuff, but I never, it never really gelled with me. But at one point it did, and then that kind of changed my perception. But really, I think a lot of that comes down to, we're, we're talking about something that is my passion. I think the biggest thing that I've come become aware of is passion is what will change anything in your life. If, if you don't like your job and you want to go pursue some passion, well, that, that may, then maybe that passion isn't quite strong enough to leave the job. You know, that passion has to be so overwhelmingly powerful that it will, in and of itself, just slowly change your life. And 
I, I, I think that, I mean, because there's, you know, the, a lot of the things that I still struggle with today, I'm just, I could care less about. I'm not passionate about. <laughs> and, uh, 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 but when it revolves around work and which work for me is art and when it revolves around the passion, I, I don't care what I need to do. I'm going to find a way to make it happen. And I think if anybody wants to, you know, find a way to, change some big thing in their life it's just to put more faith and put more effort in the passion because that is what's going to change everything it's wonderful and you're lucky that you were always so clear about what your passion was because a lot of people struggle with that they don't really know what their element is what they're passionate about you know maybe early on they were told that that wasn't good that wasn't something that they should care about or they should want to do or it wasn't right and and it gets lost and mm -hmm. people don't actually know what it is that they are truly passionate about because maybe it, it didn't seem to be the right thing yeah, I think many things that, you know, we have a tendency to try things once or twice and then, you know, leave it. No, that, you know, that wasn't for me. But I think, you know, that if, if people don't have their passion, well, find passion in finding you. Well, and also your steadfastness and your determination, right, which seem to be elements of your personality. Perfect. So you are going to keep at it. You're not going to try something. Oh, I'm not good at that. So I'm done. Yeah, yeah, I would agree completely. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the goodbye art. And that's mm. art that had to be destroyed. Was that the ultimate limitation? It really was. I mean, you know, it's funny to look back now and like, you know, I talk about this series. I did this project for a year and I had 23 pieces and I destroyed them all. And it's funny to look back and say, okay, I have video, but I have nothing physical to show for an entire year's worth of work, which is very odd as an artist. Was that okay from the beginning? You knew at the beginning I'm not going to have anything at the end. Yeah, I, I think it was when I started, I kind of started in a hurry and started with enthusiasm and yeah, I don't care, you know, a year from now, I don't care that I'm going to have nothing. And I think there was definitely a fear going in and in, in the beginning there were projects that were Frankly, I thought they were beautiful, and I did not. There was there was no value in destroying them at that point to me, other than just continuing on with this path I had laid out. So, did you destroy them all? Were there ones that you couldn't bring yourself to destroy? No, I destroyed them all. I mean, ultimately, you know, after you destroy something, there's sometimes still little bits left over. But <laughs> the actual keep them in a box. There's the burnt matches from Jimi yeah, Hendrix. That, that, that's that's the only one I have left. You know, I have the the remains left, but <laughs> that was called the iterations of destruction. Is that accurate? Uh, I mean, the the iterations are kind of what came out of the project naturally, but. And did that become the theme from the original limitation concept? Were you challenging traditional concepts of art at that time, or did you just think that that was a cool idea and you were going to go forward with that? I really thought it was a cool idea, and I wanted to challenge myself. And and uh, and you know, I came from uh, school and work full time, and being you know spending six months on a piece, and I thought it would be an amazing challenge to try to create a new piece in in my kind of style, which it takes a lot of time, um, uh, but a new piece every single week. And I, I did it to some degree. I ultimately kind of fell apart.
halfway through and then re- rejoined the project towards the end. But <laughs> Did you make any stuff during that year that you could keep, like, you know, just to keep the balance? Like, okay, I'm going to draw this picture and it goes in the keep pile. Or did uh, everything have to be destroyed? What was your deal with yourself? Um, ultimately, I think I, I made one piece that was outside of that project. But when, you know, I mean, I, I was I was still working full time doing this. And the amount of video production and then the social media time and then the actual art creation itself there was there was no time for anything else. Right. You know, I was just doing that, a hundred percent. There was no and social life. Do you set a, a certain amount of time for yourself to work during the day? Are you scheduled the way you approach your art, when, especially when you're working on a particular project? Um, if, if yeah, if I'm on a project, yes. You know, I have to make time for stuff. Um, but if I'm not on a project, then I just have my huge to-do list, and sometimes my calendar, an entire week, will only be creating one piece, and I do absolutely nothing else. And then, then the next week, it's back to this, you know, big to-do list of just running through all of the the smaller things that need to happen. But sort of on a daily basis, are you nine to five? Do you have certain hours? Writers will say, "Can I write from this time to that time? Do you work more at night? Does that vary as well?" Uh, I would say, and I used to be a nighttime person, but I'm much more of an early riser now. I'm a, I'm up at 6 and usually in front of the computer in the office at 6.30, 6.45 and moving on projects. Um, the actual creation of the projects, it really depends. A lot of my creative time happens in the morning or the evening in the planning. And then once I get to the actual art creation, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the creativity goes in with, with, with my kind of work goes in before the art creation. And then the art creation becomes a skill set and, you know, kind of troubleshooting and the creativity within that. Um, so, yeah, then the actual art creation can be almost any time of the day. It's funny to me that you said the office rather than the studio. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the studio is kind of all over the place. Uh, I have a, uh, a white space for filming in the garage. I work downstairs. Uh, it's kind of all over. Wherever it needs to be is what it is. I, I had a studio at one point, but that was just because I didn't have enough space at home. And I don't know. I've never really had a, other than that one studio, I've never had a working space that is consistent because I like change. You know, I like to work in a different environment and keep my, my, my just my visual sense different. And if I kind of leave myself in the same environment all the time, I feel that things will get kind of stagnated and I need to keep changing it up. So you got to get out of the box <laughs> once you've gotten back <laughs> in the box or you're going to go stagnant. And do you have people helping you when you're doing the actual production, putting together all those matches? When I saw that slide, I'm like, well, just the, that's super cool, right? And the, the design was super cool and, and the destruction of it was awesome. But I start thinking the actual putting together of the pieces of the matches, that must have been challenging. It's, yeah, and so then this is, you know, as I was saying, that some of the work really is just laborious and is work and is extremely boring, but, you know, it has this great goal and end at the end. And I think that's one of the few things that I can bring to the art that I do is the, is the commitment to the time, the perseverance through that's just drudgery sometimes. Yeah, because the, so the match piece, I actually, when you buy matches, these little matches that I had, they just had a red tip. And so I actually had to go through and color all of the matches. So th- this this picture of Jimi Hendrix is made with red-tipped matches, white-tipped matches, and black-tipped. And the white-tipped ones, I had to dip a regular match in white out 
And then the black-tipped ones, I had the, I, I took the inner portion of a Sharpie, and I, I that, that felt part, I removed it from the, from the Sharpie, and then would rub each uh, match individually in that felt part to color it black. And so just coloring the matches took me two weeks. And then on a Friday night after getting off of work, I, I, I worked the 3 to 11 shift, so I got home at 11.30 at night, and I started stacking in hot gluing matches, and yeah, I worked through the night, and it was a 14-hour session of just sitting and hot gluing. Okay, are you married at this point? No. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you were, I didn't think, don't think you would be any longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah and my, so my, then, my wife does put up with a tremendous amount of... So then you glued and, the matches together. Yep, so, four, so two weeks of coloring them, 14 hours of gluing them. And then uh, uh, took it out. And then once I was done, I got some photographs of it, then took it outside and set it up and burned it. And it took a minute and 20 seconds to burn. Did you do all this on your own? Yes. And oh, yes. Back to your main question of yes. Did was, you have to test different glues? Uh, the, not the glue, but actually how the matches were going to burn because I wanted to burn it from the top down. I wanted a little more. I wanted a little more control over how it was actually going to burn, and and you know I figured that if one match, if their matches are all pushed up against each other, that one will light the next. But I didn't know how much that would affect uh, as they would burn down, and if and if they were covered in whiteouts, because then that adds kind of a hard shell to them. Yeah, so there's a lot of testing that went into that ahead of time. And what did you set it on when you burnt it? Uh, just, just, just a piece of plywood. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your willingness to make mistakes because clearly you are willing to. I was going to ask how important was the commitment to process, but that's already very clear. You are extremely committed to the process. <laughs> Letting go of the outcomes and the failure, and, and let's say you had lit it and it only half burned, would you have built it all again or, or let go of that? Would that have been the result? I probably would have just laughed and lit it from a different spot and just kept lighting it until it went. Yeah, yeah the, the uh, mistakes and failures are absolutely part of life, and I think they should be part of whatever we're passionate about, too. And so for me, and, and, and maybe that's easy for me to say because it's art, and so if it doesn't work out, well, maybe that's not, as, not that big of a deal. And so I'm always taking risks because I feel like with risks comes greater potential for success. And did you grow up with that? That sense of it's okay to fail, it's okay to take risks? I would say yes. Um, not not so explicitly, you know, but but I mean there was certainly no harm in taking risks. Because you, you say that in a sort of a nonchalant way, but I think a lot of people, maybe even most people, they don't want to make mistakes. And taking a yeah. risk and the unknown and not knowing the outcome is going to be, that can stop them in their tracks or stop us in our tracks because that's too risky. Well, and actually, yes, I, I forgot to talk about, and I have mentioned that uh, the perfectionism in the beginning and this extreme commitment to the process um, that all kind of culminated in this Goodbye Art series. And it was in that series where I really learned to let go, where I learned that mistakes and failure is part of the process and that fantastic outcomes can come out of that. And just that, that uh, before that, I was very, you know, everything had to be perfect. I had to have this product. I had to have this finished thing that was 
perfect. And I would adjust and adjust and adjust until it was perfect. And frankly, when I did this one year of uh, Goodbye Art, uh, destroying everything, I, I so much let go where I'm actually trying to retrain myself to get back to some of the perfectionism. <laughs> I, I want a little down. bit of a balance. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a, a little too much of a carefree attitude in some ways that and, came out of that. And so did you learn to let go through the process of the goodbye art or was it the initial commitment to making the goodbye art where you said, okay, now I'm in this track. On this track, I don't have to be perfect. I can make mistakes. I can let go of the outcome. So I'm on this track now and kaboom, I'm doing it. Or was it a, a process? You know, the first one was maybe hard to light on fire. <laughs> the second one, not so much. Um, it was, it, it definitely was a process because early on, um, I would spend much more time creating the art than I did towards the end because I began to realize that, that the process and was ultimately more important than the end product in this overall project. And so I would be more experimental and more accepting of things that didn't quite look perfect and uh, perfect to, to my eye. And, um, uh, in the beginning, what I would spend time on and after I destroyed it, I realized, oh, you know, I didn't quite need to do that level of, you know, adjusting this or adjusting that. And so I definitely changed my way of working as I went through. Was it fun to destroy the stuff? Like, did that help you to let go of it that you thought, oh, like this part's kind of as much fun as that being a perfectionist part was? Um... With some of the projects, it was fun to destroy. There was one that I built. It was a, uh, I happened to catch the absolute perfect weather conditions where it was 40. It was in the middle of the winter, but it, it rose to 40 degrees during the day. Mm -hmm. And I built a, a wall of snow that was six inches thick and about six feet tall and maybe eight feet wide. And as it turned to night, the temperatures got colder and colder. And so this wall held together as what I would do is I would scrape it away. And I had a light that was behind this, behind this wall. And so as I scraped away the snow, it made it thinner and thinner, and then light, was a lot, light came through the snow. And so I was actually able to create an image just by having different thicknesses of snow in this wall. And that one, ultimately, it was goodbye art, and I had to destroy it, and so it was a blast to throw myself at this wall of snow and to knock it down. So the perfectionist part, too, was maybe a something you and then when you could start to see that the outcome could be created without actually being a perfectionist, that you could let go of that part of your your control, uh, your drive, uh, or your personality. I'm just still really amazed by these <laughs> like personality shifts that you make so so um, seamlessly. I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it gets to um, how we're raised in society and a lot of it is built around, I mean, our, our education system teaches us that there, you know, there is a right answer. There is perfect. And when you're in that environment and you keep striving towards perfect, although, and of course, perfect can be shifted if they add more questions to the test, um, uh, uh, that we build this idea that things have to be a certain way. And looking now at art, I find that so much of what we teach as art is actually we're teaching a skill. We're teaching how to draw photographically. We're teaching how to draw a certain way. We're not teaching creativity. We're giving maybe we're giving the students the tools for creativity, but we're actually teaching a skill that then they can go use. And I think that's where my obsession came in, is that I was spending so much time 
in uh, 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 this perfectionism place that once I started to push myself with limitations and doing this Goodbye Art series, then I started to see, wait, the skill is just one element in that there's so much more creativity to be had and the skill isn't as important. It doesn't have to be perfect because perfection is just if you can do it correctly. It doesn't, you know, the, the creativity is in the process and getting to that end goal. So you said most of what we do takes place inside the box with limited resources and we can transform ourselves and our world showing up for the process. When you're choosing the, the process to show up for, is that just sort of in alignment with your passion? Yes, because I mean the 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 passion is what <laughs> it's really what gives you that emotional fortitude. It gives you the the the, the ability to persevere through things. Why the hamburger grease with the Mona Lisa? What's the connection there? Actually, so that was uh, uh, that was kind of a funny one. That was for Arby's. Um, that was an, actually an advertisement that I did for Arby's. So in all of these create, all, all this time spent creating videos and posting them, I get approached by different companies to create um, videos for them, and then you then you have to work within the box that they want you to work within. And so uh, Arby's had a new burger that they were coming out with. They called it the roast burger, and it wasn't as greasy. And so uh, then we ended up using McDonald's, yeah, well, actually, I think we used a variety, but yes, then we used hamburgers from other uh, fast food other joints. Other greasy people's burgers. Exactly, exactly. And then we just made an image that was recognizable. So that was an advertising piece that wasn't my art in that sense. So what role does art serve for you in your relationship with yourself? And then I want to talk about in relationship with uh, the community. <laughs> How does art serve in a relationship with myself? So, like, it's your passion. Um, and it's now your job. Mm -hmm. And is it other things as well? I mean, do you see, feel like you have a, a particular way of being in the world or seeing the world, being an artist, is it a way that you define yourself sort of in your identity as well, personal identity or your relationships? That's somehow, somehow that's a tough question. Okay, we can always move on to your it's just, relationship it's just a, it's with... It's a big one, yeah. Yeah, art in the community. Because you've got a kids program, you're involved, your art involves people, other people outside of yourself within the community. The process of working on a arts education initiative, but that, that's on, uh, on our own. And that, so, I mean, for me, arts in community... Um, is really, I've always thought of my place as being a bridge. Being one of being an artist that, that can maybe help bring people to art. That, you know, I can create and show people a different way of seeing art and then getting them more interested in the art world. And uh, within all of that process and within doing the different social artwork stuff where I involved people in the creation process and then I, I had a creativity book that came out a couple of years ago and I got into schools a lot and then when I this was alluded a little bit to earlier where you know, I started to see that schools were really teaching the skill you know they weren't teaching the creativity and when I meet with people in the business world they want people with creativity and the parents want their student they want their children to be creative but then the school system just hasn't figured out how to teach creativity. 
And, and uh, uh, then within all of the pieces we've been talking about, too, is that we have, uh, uh, we have creative confidence is huge. You know, being able to fail and be okay with it is huge. All of these things perfectly overlap in art class. And art is one of the few places in a school where there's the freedom to make mistakes. There's the freedom to fail. There's, you know, not everything has to be perfect. And of course, this comes with that big asterisk of it depends on the teacher. But <laughs> uh, And so what uh, uh, my wife and I are working on is an art education initiative. And it's still in the very early phases. So I can't say a whole lot about it, except that we're really trying to find a way to aid the not just the student but the art teacher because the teachers spend so much time uh, on on smaller things that they in, in many ways there should be something there should be a system that takes away a lot of the daily stuff and gives them the time to gives them more time to really commit uh, further with the students that they just they can't right now ultimately I think what we're trying to do is we're really trying to aid the system that already exists because, you know, there are unusual, I mean, unfor unfortunately I have to use the word unusual schools that um, uh, are really doing an amazing job, but there's so many uh, teachers out there that are really struggling within the system that is in place. We're really trying to uh, aid that process and I think, I think education is, well, it's very obvious that it's changing, but one of the ways that it's changing is um, uh, uh, being more uh, that all of the subjects are being connected more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think art is a great place to do that because within, you know, within drawing you have perspective. Well, within perspective you have math, you have science, you know, why do things, why are things in the distance a little more faded, more grayed out? You know, how, how, how can you determine if something is X number of meters away from you, how big it has to be? And so there's all those elements that all kind of come into play in art. And so I do see that's a direction that we will move as a society. But we are going to work along as that system changes. Within it. And yeah. working with those teachers as well, because even with a person that has the desire, for that's not their natural inclination. And as you said, when you were first approaching art and you're more of a perfectionist, you need to be willing to let go of the control. And there might be some mess and there might be some chaos. And you might not be sure with exactly where this lesson's going to go or what the outcome's going to be. And even with the intention to allow people some more freedom and, and more experiential uh, learning, it it takes a, a trust and a willingness to sort of to leap into it. I want to talk a little bit of just at the end of, of our time together about trust. And when you were willing to embrace your shake and to accept what was going on and then work with it. The first step was you, you had to, to have some trust there, right? That it was going to be okay and work out. Yeah. Well, and, uh, yeah, a, uh, a friend of mine, he, he kind of, he, he's, he's somebody I, that I'm looking to for a mentor-ish kind of person uh, in business. And one of the things he keeps saying is, what's the absolute worst case scenario? Mm -hmm. You know, is the absolute worst case scenario that you have to go in back and get another job? The worst case scenario is, you know, even worse than that, that you have to move in with some friend or, you know, move to where your parents live. And is that, is that risk worth the, the potential benefit? You know, I mean, if, if, again, if this is the one chance we have, 
then is the worst so, case scenario really all that bad? He's your spiritual mentor or your business mentor? <laughs> you said business. But yeah, it yeah, business. Pretty spiritual. No. Uh, but it's but it's completely uh, business too because yeah, you the gotta, same. yeah, you got to take those risks, and if you don't, then yeah, then the potential for growth is completely different. And so that maybe is going to be my last question. Do you, you see yourself as being incredibly pragmatic, or is it more of a spiritual thing? It's yeah, it's interesting. So I'm completely pragmatic, and I think a lot of I mean, it just happens that I mean that that stuff is a reality. You know that these things, if you pursue your passion, that's the reality is the you know that you can lead yourself in a different way, a different path, and that is a all the all. It is entirely a spiritual thing, but it's also very pragmatic too. Well, so maybe you've answered the big question that the road to spirituality is actually being completely pragmatic by accepting the rules and the operations <laughs> of the universe and following them to nirvana. That, that sounds perfect, yes. Okay. Well, Phil, it was wonderful to speak with you, and thank you so much for joining us. This is Ellie Newman on KDPI 89.3 FM Ketchum. So when World War Three starts, I can look back and know what I was thinking. I was thinking.